Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the Trudeau government offered Premier's $46.2 billion in new health care funding at yesterday's summit. Is it enough? Will it be allocated properly? We'll talk about that. Canadians having a visceral reaction to the smug corporate power being projected by major supermarket change these days. Jim Stanford's an economist and director of the Center for Future Work. He'll join us to discuss the problems and the implications. And the CBC is looking to end traditional TV and radio broadcasting and move completely digital. When's this going to happen and what kind of an impact is it going to have? It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Of course, the buzz is what's going on in Ottawa. Yesterday, the premiers and the prime minister met to talk health care and, uh, the Prime Minister, well, put an offer on the table, which uh, was received with, shall we say, with mixed emotions and mixed reaction. Uh, at that meeting yesterday, of course, the Prime Minister offered uh, that his government will increase federal health care transfers to the provinces by about $196 billion. Stephanie Taylor has details. Trudeau's offer includes an immediate and unconditional top-up of $2 billion to the Canada Health Transfer to ease hospital pressure. His overall proposal would see that annual transfer to provinces increase by another $17 billion above previous commitments. Trudeau's offer also includes sending premiers $25 billion over 10 years through one-on-one agreements to deal with priority areas like family medicine, surgical backlogs, mental health, and data collection. Stephanie Taylor, The Canadian Press, Ottawa. Well, as I say, kind of mixed reviews, especially from some of the premiers yesterday. But uh, let's let's do some analysis as to whether or not they hit the mark here. What is needed for the healthcare system? There's a lot of money on the table there. Is it enough, and is it going to go to the right places? Our next guest has some opinions on that. Uh, he is Dr. Jason Profetto. Uh, Dr. Profetto is a family physician and chair of clinical skills and MD admissions at McMaster University. Uh, doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks, Bill, for having me on. My pleasure to be here. Let me ask you right off the top. I mean, a lot of big numbers being tossed around by the premiers and by the prime minister yesterday. You're there on the front lines. You're working this stuff every day. Uh, is, is, is money the problem here or is it where that money is allocated? Yeah, I, I think money is always helpful, but I also think that money without proper allocation and, and delegation is, is going to be problematic. It really needs to go in the right place, but all, also we need to set up community care primary care, family medicine in the community in such a way that patients can access it and we're running an efficient business. Is that non-existent or just uh, it's, it's there but not funded properly? A little bit of both. So here's the issue. And I really believe that this is going to be one of the best ways to help fix the healthcare system. Um, if you look right now in Hamilton, there's a couple of colonoscopy clinics, for example, that are outside of the hospital. They are run owned and operated by doctors and if you need to get a colonoscopy these guys literally will get you in within a couple of days if it is urgent they will get you in with a single day's notice and they'll get the colonoscopy done asap as a result the detection of cancer the prevention of complications the 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 the, the prevention of getting this cancer further down the line when it's metastasized and really problematic is much better. So they're saving lives or providing a really good service. But at the same time, these doctors are running these businesses with public, publicly funded healthcare through OHIP, and it's a better delivery. If you need a colonoscopy right now through the hospital on an elective basis, as in that you're being referred by the community, it can take sometimes at the best, at the best, weeks or months. So I think that on a grander scale, especially in family medicine, is going to be very important. The ability to deliver family medicine in 
clinics that are operated and owned by family doctors, taken care of by family doctors, making sure that you're really doing things in an organized way is very, very important. All right. So I just want to be clear here for our listeners then. So basically, you're suggesting then, doctor, uh, that those that are suggesting that if, if we put more money into, uh, well, as you say, private businesses for profit, whichever phrase they want to use, it's, it's this is not going to be the ruin of the healthcare system as we know it if we, if we embrace more of this sort of uh, procedure? I think that the best way to answer it is to, and, and this is where I can speak from both professional and personal experience. If you look at the Hamilton community or the Toronto community, the communities that I work in locally, the best health care is delivered through these types of clinics. And we're talking about doctors that are working five or six days a week, seeing a lot of patients. They have excellent access, but they're not dealing with hospital levels of administration and bureaucracy that are so thick that not only do they cost money, but they also pro- cause delays. So, if right now, this and this is the, the honest to God truth, right now, if I make a referral for a geriatric patient, we will not get an appointment through the hospital system. We won't get an appointment for at least at least 6 to 12 months. That's To me, that's unacceptable. If I need to do a referral to a for a vasectomy, there's a, a couple of doctors in Hamilton that run and operate their own clinics. You can get a referral within a couple of weeks, right? So just like when you compare and contrast the access, the timeliness, but not only that, when you actually look at the quality of care that doctors deliver when they own and operate a business, it's, it's actually very, very impressive. There's a couple of caveats and fine tuning that you need to ensure is done, but it often is very, very well done. Uh, and your example, I guess, is maybe the most obvious for people to understand. Uh, family physicians, I guess, by nature, are are are, are for profit. Although they're private enterprises, I mean, you know, the, the government doesn't buy your equipment if you have a uh, you know a GP and you have your own office. All of that stuff is is you know capital costs. You're paying the staff, et cetera, et cetera. So you're a doctor like that is is essentially a business person as well as a physician. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's funny, I was having this uh, conversation at the medical school with my medical students um, just yesterday, and I was saying to them that, and, and the literature is very clear on this, the, the financial literacy as part of the curriculum in medicine is actually very important. It's, and it's not just for the doctor, it's for the infrastructure of the healthcare system. So appreciate, I sort of own and operate my medical office with my team here, Right. And, and I do that. But what I, as a result, what I'm doing is I am contributing to the physical health care structure in Ontario. And now because it's my space, my building, my clinic, I care about it. I want to see things run smoothly. I want to make sure that my staff are taken care of. I want to make sure that when patients come in, they're greeted with a smiling face. I have that level of organization and oversight because I have a level of financial literacy that's, let's say, at least reasonably strong. And I think what has to happen is right across the board in healthcare, we need to see options like this where appropriate. You're not going to run an intensive care unit in, in a community office, right? Like certain things need to be in a more complex hospital system. But there's a lot of stuff that can be dealt with outside of hospitals in a more efficiently run manner. Well, and because we've, I've, you know, well that we've had that debate going on for years now, pr- public versus private. Uh, you know, if there are going to be uh, a hybrid model, or hybrid models that are set up, you know, what ratios, etc. There's an awful lot of questions here. Uh, 
how would you set up a system like that? I, I, I take your point that it, to a certain extent, already exists. Uh, but now that there's more money on the table right now, uh, are, are there people that are uh, capable and in government and the bureaucracy right now that, that can manage a system like this? Yeah, that, I mean, that's part of the golden question. So the first thing is, when we, anytime we use the word private, I would just like to highlight that we're talking about privately owned and delivered healthcare systems, but not to the experience of a patient. So in my office, for example, even if I own the actual office in the building, it means nothing in terms of the experience of the patient. So the patient is not paying to come here. It's all still pub- pu- publicly accessible. And I am, I am funded through OHIP uh, as a source of revenue to make sure that my operation runs. I get nervous anytime we talk about government intervention, um, the, the thickness, the thickness of the bureaucrats behind the decision making, the, the levels of administration that these things need to go to. And what I would rather see is the development of leadership within the healthcare experts. So there are a lot of doctors that could do better with a better business sense, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, anyone that's involved with family health teams, family health organizations. But these are people that are in and working in at the trench level, seeing things on a day-to-day and not working from an ivory tower. And I don't mean to be so blunt and cynical, but I think that's an important distinguish, distinguishing feature. Well, because we've had that concern, and I think it is a legitimate concern. You know, people in the health ministry, and I'm not trying to knock Sylvia Jones in particular here in Ontario, but I mean, are these people actually qualified? I mean, I know they get briefed uh, by people that, that do have medical training and medical backgrounds, uh, but this is a, a monstrous uh, enterprise that we're undertaking here, trying to mix business with medicine. And as you mentioned, doctor, not everybody's good at both. So there's, there's got to have to be some support here. I don't hear anybody even talking about that process until today. Yeah. I, I think, you know, one of the best ways to move forward, what, what I would personally really do and recommend is I would go to the clinics in Ontario, um, in the Hamilton, Toronto, Stony Creek, whatever areas that are very well run. If you look at, for example, I'm not, I don't want to put names out there on the radio, but there's some colonoscopy clinics in Hamilton that are absolutely fantastic. The bookings are smooth. The appointments are timely. Your experience as a patient, you go there, things are safe, they're done well, the communication is fantastic, and as a result, your experience in healthcare with that specific service tends to be a lot better. And if you could extend that to various forms, you think about gynecological services, care of the elderly, pediatrics, even some of our pediatric clinics that are in the community, fast service owned and operate by a group of pediatricians, some support for that business aspect of it, that financial literacy, the fiscal orientation that you require, it can be a very, very powerful system. Well, and we've seen examples of that. I mean, you're right. I know there's an an endoscopy clinic right downtown Hamilton. uh, And I know people that have attended that. And as you say, first of all, from a timing standpoint, they they get the procedure done much quicker. uh, And they you know the the satisfaction, I guess, is 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 right there because these are professionals. So, so we understand that. But why is it that every time we have this discussion, when it get into private versus public, uh, it 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 seems to just crumble into well, you know, worst case scenarios. It's going to be this bad, and people are going to lose their jobs. Uh, they're going to suck uh, staff and, and expertise out of the public system to go and and, and staff the private system. They paint a pretty bleak picture, though. 
I think part of the problem with that, though, is like even as we talk about this, what does it mean to be public and what does it mean to be private, right? So I think the the one main important feature here is that when I say private, I'm not talking about patients paying for healthcare because that fundamentally would be a very different culture change in Ontario. So I, I'm not sure that's the right answer. Because there's going to be a lot of, especially individuals from low-income backgrounds and, and socioeconomically vulnerable backgrounds, it's going to be difficult for that sort of shift to happen. What I specifically am interested in is the better organization and delivery of the healthcare infrastructure as we know it today. So what I mean is less programs through hospitals where there's a lot of administration and more community access with better support for doctors. So we had um, three graduates from the family medicine residency program. They went to McMaster Medical School. Three young ladies, they, they, are, they are now graduated doctors, brilliant women, and they, they want to start a clinic. That clinic that they're gonna start as family doctors is gonna be a great resource for the Hamilton community. They've started it, the family health team has been helping out, and what do you know, we have this great service, three doctors, they're working, patients are going, and the feedback very early on is very positive. That's what I mean when I think of a blended public-private delivery of healthcare in our community. Well, I know we're just about out of time here, but I think what you're describing here, and, and, and which seems like a very workable idea here, uh, I think it just screams that there's got to have to be some transparency here and some oversight into this. Because uh, a lot of us, I think, doctor, over the years have just figured that, you know, every time the government says we're going to put more money into healthcare, it goes into a black hole. We don't know where they've invested it. We don't know what kind of outcomes we uh, they're, they're getting as a result of those investments. If, in fact, they're even investing. We heard some stories about provinces that take the money from the government and then put it into general revenue, uh, which isn't helping the system at all. So there's there's got to be some accountability here, doesn't there? Absolutely. And I think one of the main points to take away from this is a service is only useful when it's actually accessible. So it's great to have a referral program that you can do through a hospital, but if it takes 18 to 24 months to get in, it might as well not exist at all. So I think we really need to think about reasonable delivery times of, of healthcare in Ontario and how best to do that in the community setting. Uh, always a pleasure to have you on the program, Doctor, to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for this today. Thank you, Bill. Have a great day and enjoy the warm weather. <laughs> Such as it is, yeah. Thanks again. Dr. Jason Profetto, uh, always opinionated and, and very insightful about what's happening with our healthcare system. Uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, the Premier and the, pro and the Prime Minister said yesterday that they knew they weren't going to, quote-unquote, get the deal done yesterday. But I, I don't know if this is a good start-off for it or if we're just still you know, slugging through the mud here. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're all dealing with inflation. It was interesting to read the uh, the comments from Bank of Canada Governor uh, uh, Tiff Macklin the other day that says he thinks we've turned the corner on inflation. Uh, I'm not feeling it. I don't know if you're feeling it. Uh, but we're still hurting an awful lot. And we're, I think, spending more time trying to an analyze just what's going on and why. And, and yes, there's a lot of things going on here. Uh, that are, are driving us nuts right now and increasing our cost of living, the price of gasoline, the price of home feed, you know, home heating, on and on it goes, whether it's natural gas or whatever you're doing. Uh, hydro bills are going up. But the number one thing I think that really gets under people's skin, and, and survey after survey have indicated this, are food prices, grocery stores. I mean, we got to eat. Right? Maybe you're not going to use the car as often, or you can turn the thermometer down or thermostat down on your house, but you got to eat. And it's costing us more and more to do that. And uh, the grocery stores have gone on the offensive now to simply say, hey, don't blame us. Not our fault. 
we're just, you know, average people like you, and we're suffering just like them, and we're victims here. It's, you know, the suppliers that are, are raising the prices. Uh, I don't know if you're buying into that, but there's a, a great deal of research that's been done by this, by our next guest, uh, that talks about uh, exactly where we are, but more importantly, why we are where we are. Uh, he is Jim Stanford. He's an economist and director of the Center for Future Work. Uh, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to analyze and talk about some of this. Uh, Jim, a pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you, sir, for having me. Well, I read this uh, article yesterday, your op-ed piece uh, that appeared a couple of days ago now, uh, and boy, you're, you're checking all the boxes here, the things that people are really bugged about, about food prices, uh, the fact that they basically are saying, don't look at us, we're, we, you know, we're caught in the middle here, uh, and almost a smugness to, to the way that they're responding to some of the concerns that people have. And there's something about that cardigan sweater that Galen Weston wears <laughs> in the ads. That just pisses people off all the more, isn't it, Bill? It's uh, patronizing. Well, yeah. It talks down to us. It pretends that he's a normal person when, in fact, he's one of the richest people in the country. So I understand why people are angry. But you know what? That's, well, you know the, the phrase, it's staging. You know, here's Galen. He's got the sweater on, and he's hanging out with just ordinary people, uh, talking about chocolate chip cookies. And, you know, boy, and we got them on sale now. PC brand, boy, the best you could ever get. And the sort of guy that you'd run into in the frozen food section, you know, at the, at the latest Loblaw store. Uh, but but he's calling the shots here, and, and they don't seem to want to talk about that. You know, it was uh, really surprising to me, Bill. I mean, you work in the in the media industry, and you know what social media can be like. It can be a really oh, yeah. nasty, nasty place, and uh, you can just get dragged into some of the you know most unproductive, uh, divisive arguments there. So, why on earth Loblaws would assign? They must have assigned a dozen staff to go out on social media and personally respond to people who were posting complaints about grocery store prices. This was the day that their famous uh, price freeze on no-name goods came off. Uh, February 1st was uh, was the day we're back to quote-unquote normal. I don't think people really noticed much difference, but no. they were prepared for, you know, some criticism, and they, had, they, they must have had an army of people in their office chasing people down on social media to put out these kind of corporate messages about, well, you know, we may be the face of food inflation, but we're not the cause. Blame those people over there, pointing mostly to their suppliers. And um, I, I just think it was tone deaf, and I think it did the company more harm than good. Well, and you've done some analysis on this, and I want to talk about some of the numbers that you've uncovered here, uh, because they, they tell a story. And, uh, you know, to this idea, of, as you mentioned in the piece, the finger pointing that goes back and forth, you know, the food manufacturers and suppliers are, are blaming the grocery stores. The grocery stores are pointing their fingers and say, no, it's their guys. Uh, but according to your research here, Jim, a pox on both their houses. They're both guilty of this. And the, the consumer is the one kind of stuck in the middle between this battle of uh, corporate titans, if you like. You know, when, when Loblaws blames suppliers, who, who are we actually talking about? The, you know, Loblaws, by and large, doesn't buy much from, you know, the family farm down the road. They themselves deal with very big uh, uh, corporate conglomerates that uh, have purchased uh, the raw agricultural output and then manufactured it, processed it, uh, packaged it, etc., and uh, those companies are also also very large and uh, very powerful. Think about a company, say, like a meat processor like Cargill, big global company, a, a bit of a lock on the meat industry. The meat prices have been super high, and Cargill's profits have been super high. So if we see Loblaws in one corner and Cargill in the other, I, I'm going to say, you know, I'm not cheering for either one of them. They're both doing the same thing. They're both taking advantage of a moment in his 
history when supply chains were disrupted and consumers were desperate. And uh, they're doing what, you know, I suppose what corporations are supposed to do, which is make as much money as they possibly can. But you can't blame uh, consumers for, for being angry about being the, the victims of that. Well, the number that jumped out at me uh, when I saw this, and I, I, we're all living it, experiencing this, is uh, grocery prices increased 11% last year. Uh, and inflation, as we know, was, as you mentioned in the piece, only about 6.3% on average. I mean, there were some peaks and valleys there. But uh, when you're when you're almost five points ahead of the inflation rate, uh, you know, t- please, you know, explain to me again why you're being hard done by. And that's that's the kind of the message Loblaws and Sobeys and Metro and all of them are, are singing. Certainly. No, food prices uh, have remained one of the dominant sources of uh, of inflation. Uh, food prices have not been sensitive at all to the Bank of Canada's uh, medicine for this problem. You know, the bank has been increasing interest rates to try and drive down consumer spending power, but that hasn't affected food prices, and, uh, and I could have told you that. <laughs> you know, the reality is, is, as you said at the outset, Bill, we have to eat, and uh, the problem of, uh, of paying $200 for a cart of groceries did not arise because, you know, Canadian workers had too much money in their pocket. That seems to be the, the theory behind the Bank of Canada's approach. So it, it hasn't worked. To be fair, you know, there are, there are huge things that have happened in the in global food supply chain. You know, the, the COVID pandemic, of course, disrupted all kinds of things. The war in Ukraine has had a big impact on food prices because of uh, uh, the things that they grow over there. Uh, climate change. You know, we're seeing uh, we're seeing things like uh, floods and droughts happening. You know, so-called once-in-a-century events happening pretty well every other month. So uh, these these things are certainly happening. But what what we do see is that the powerful companies all along the food chain, both the processors and the supermarkets. Uh, have taken advantage of these supply disruptions to increase prices, knowing that they've got a captive market. And uh, that has made it far, far worse. There's no doubt that without the excess profits that have been captured by the supermarkets and the others, uh, the inflation we'd be facing would be much less severe. All right, Jim, listen, you, you've forgotten more about economics than I'll ever know. I mean, but, uh-huh. but I want to get your, your perspective on this. Uh, because of the circumstance that we find ourselves in, and I've heard these stories from our listeners uh, for the last number of months now, uh, we're cutting back. Uh, you know, we're, we're going to the no-frill store as opposed to the Loblaws store. Uh, we're not buying as much. In other words, and, and the numbers indicate this, that, that actually the food sales are down considerably. And if, if we're not buying as much, how in God's name are the profits still soaring? And they are. Yeah. This is, uh, in a way, a very concerning uh, thing in the data, uh, Bill, that, that I was very worried about. Um, and, and it puts the lie to the supermarkets' claim that the reason their profits are so high, they are making record profits. And they say, well, it's just because our business has grown and we collect a profit margin on every dollar that we sell. It's a small profit margin, and, and, then, and we're just kind of taking the same uh, cream off the top, if you like. This is the argument they've made. First of all, it's wrong. Their profit margin has grown substantially by about three quarters since before the pandemic. So the, the claim that the margin has been the same is false. But um, the business is not growing. If you actually measure, Statistics Canada does a price-adjusted uh, measure of how many groceries, the quantity of groceries that Canadians are buying. It spiked, of course, during the initial lockdowns when everyone was doing the panic buying and chasing toilet paper, etc. But it's been declining ever since, and, and it's kept declining. It's now back to below where it was in 2019 before the pandemic hit, yet Canada's population is bigger. So 
how are we actually buying less groceries? And and this worries me. It does mean, you know, people are looking for other sources. They're obviously buying the cheaper, uh, cheaper options, but maybe going to farmers markets and other things like that. It also literally means people are eating less. And we hear too many stories about uh, low-income Canadians skipping meals uh, or even their kids skipping meals. And that uh, is heartbreaking and intolerable. We shouldn't in, in Canada, despite what we've been through, have a situation where anyone in this country goes hungry. But that's literally what we're seeing. The most incredulous uh, response, I guess, and this goes back to your the PR thing that the, that the grocery stores are all doing right now. You mentioned a couple of minutes ago, Jim, about uh, that two hundred dollar, you know, shopping cart full of groceries. Uh, and uh, was it the Loblaws guy? I, I think, as, or Metro, I can't remember which. Said, yeah, yeah, our profit margin on that two hundred dollars worth of groceries is only about four dollars. Are you kidding? Really? That's all you make out of something like that? I mean, and we're supposed to buy that? Yeah, well, I mean, the reality is uh, there's a heck of a lot of money that goes through grocery stores. So measured as a share of the total that we pay, their profits uh, are, you know, relatively small, much less than, say, when you go to buy, uh, you know, the latest iPhone. The profit margin when you buy an iPhone is 30 percent. The profit margin on a new car is 5 to 10 percent. But groceries are a mass business, so you don't expect to get a high profit margin. And that doesn't really prove anything. I I, I still don't buy that. I, I I don't see the logic of that argument that our profit margin is a small number, therefore stop complaining. When you add it up across all of those carts of groceries that Canadians buy, they're making a hell of a lot of money. And uh, the grocery store profits have doubled uh, since before the pandemic. They're now about $5 billion a year. And they've stayed high despite the inflation and the falling quantity of groceries that we're buying. So, you know, we've had all kinds of twists and turns and backflips about this profit margin argument. But the end of the day, the pro- the aggregate profits that these companies uh, are recording and boasting about to their investors, uh, they're always talking two different languages to two different audiences. When they're before their investors and their shareholders, they're pounding their chests about how much money they're making. And the official financial statements show their profits are at record levels. And that means they have adva- they, they have taken advantage of the inflation that we're experiencing. Well, we uh, need to shine the light on this, and that's why I appreciate, uh, A, the research you've done on this, and B, spending some time with us today, Jim. Thanks so much for this. Thank you, Bill, for having me. Take care. Jim Stanford, economist and director of the Center for Future Work. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The bill would update Canada's broadcasting rules to reflect online streaming giants such as YouTube, Netflix, and Spotify, and require them to contribute to Canadian content and make it accessible to users in Canada, or face steep penalties. Senators made amendments intended to protect user-generated content and highlight the promotion of Indigenous languages and Black content creators. That's uh, Emily Javesky uh, with a roundup of what's going on with uh, the federal government's Bill C-11, uh, which has been very controversial and gone through a couple of different incarnations uh, before the the government seemed to settle on this version of it. But there are going to be massive implications uh, when it comes to things like CanCon and, and streaming services, etc. And uh, that's, I guess, the basis and the foundation for where we want to go now, uh, because we got word uh, the other day that, uh, well, the CBC made a rather bold announcement about what their future is going to be. President of CBO, CEO of uh, CBC, now suggests uh, that uh, the network is going to uh, move to full streaming, ending traditional TV 
and traditional radio broadcasts. I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon, but the intention and the intent of actually moving in that direction uh, caught a few people off guard. So what are the implications to, to uh, this kind of a policy shift for the CBC and I guess for television in general? Uh, to talk about this, please to welcome back to the program our good friend Bill Brio, television critic and author. Uh, Brio.tv, of course, is, is the place to go uh, if you want to find out what's going on in this incredible medium that we love. And uh, there's the podcast, too, with all sorts of great stuff and some great interviews. Bill, good to have you back on the show. I hope you're doing well these days. Doing well. Bill, how are you doing? Excellent. Excellent. Uh, getting into some of the new shows here. I remember, the, 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 you know, I talked about this in the past. Uh, the, uh, you know, the mid-season shows, you know, that come on after the new year are usually uh, characterized, at least they were at some time in the past, as well. These are the ones didn't make the cut in September, but we'll throw them in there now because some of the other stuff failed. But there's some pretty good stuff. A lot of good content now. A lot of it is streaming. I mean, we are moving in that direction, whether I guess some of the hardcore traditional types want to admit that or not. Yeah, no, absolutely. Streaming is uh, where all the heat is and has been for years. And uh, it's hard for broadcasters now to launch midseason shows through that clutter. You know, it's uh, there's so much to watch. You know, I've been watching some of the the, the channels like Pluto TV and uh, others that are free. And uh, so they're also competing with the reruns of the Beverly Hillbillies now. You know, like everything yeah. is out there and you can watch it everywhere. Well, it's it's interesting. It's you know, it's the the challenge now for viewers, I guess, Bill, is where do you find the stuff? I mean, which which platform do you want to go on? Uh, and there are still some pretty decent shows on on traditional TV uh, that I like. I like Will Trent. That's uh, the one that kind of caught me off guard. I saw the ads for it. And I thought I'll give it a shot. It's a pretty good show. Uh, but but who's going to see it? Because you know, most people, especially some of the younger demographics, uh, don't use traditional TV. They don't use cable. They don't use satellite. They're streaming everything now. Yeah, and I think that's why you're seeing uh, reboots of shows like Night Court, you know, that yeah. you and I remember from its heyday back when it was on NBC and was must-see, you know, prior to Friends and Seinfeld even. Um, so, you know, at least it's a brand that we've heard of. There's one or two stars from the original that are still with it. Uh, there's a star from uh, The Big Bang Theory on it. And, um, you know, people are watching it, uh, so at least it's getting some notice. But it's hard for a brand that's just brand new to cut through the clutter. Uh, and and you got that '90s show too, which is clearly you know an update on, on that '70s show, which was a monster hit uh, back yeah. in the day too. And a, and a lot of the original cast is in this. But what intrigues me though, Bill, and you, you've written about this extensively uh, on your blog, uh, the number of stars that have just realized now that you know what TV is where I want to be. Uh, and boy, it was that's the polar opposite of the way things were uh, 15, 20 years ago, where, you know, okay, you could start off on TV if that's what you want to do, but the real money and the real prestige is in movies. But when you've got people yeah. like Stallone and Kevin Costner and go down the list, they're just saying, Harrison, no, no, no. Harrison Ford, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Harrison Ford's on two shows now, <laughs> a Western, and, uh, you know, he's playing a shrink on another one. But you have to have two different uh, uh, streaming services to see both of them. So, yeah, it's it's challenging and expensive to see your favorite stars on some of these platforms. How do they burn out as quickly as they do? I mean, because let's face it, we binge watch now. Um, and, and I just recently hooked on with, with Prime. It took me a while to kind of catch on to it, but I did. And I, I loved the, I only saw one or two episodes of the Jack Ryan series. So I binge watched those over uh, the Christmas time. Uh, John Krasinski, there's another guy who's, who's you know, moved yeah. over to this. But then you're saying, okay, when are the updates going to come? He's, oh, no, they've moved on. They're doing different projects now. 
uh, they, they just don't seem to make a big deal about it, almost as if, well, that's the expectation. You know, we'll do eight or ten episodes, maybe another season after that, but then we're gone because we've got other things to do. It's really hard. You know, the, a series uh, we're watching here that we like is Poker Face, which mm-hmm. um, is kind of like Columbo. Uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, a young woman. It's sort of a combination of the fugitive meets Columbo, but I can't tell you where it airs. <laughs> like I, like it's a struggle to remember. Um, and, and it's confusing because in Canada, I think city TV plus has this show as well as maybe, I don't know, Disney, but it, it's sometimes they cross pollinate and that makes it even more confusing. Uh, it does, but it's it's like you say, where we're going, which I guess in that context, Bill, we shouldn't really be surprised uh, with the CBC announcing these grand plans that they're essentially going to move totally to go full streaming. They've already started that process, haven't they? Yeah, their priorities have been digital for over five years now. They they went out on that limb early, and, which is unusual for CBC, <laughs> but mm-hmm. there they were. They put that flag on the ground. Um, really what Catherine Tate, who's the president and CEO that you referred to, uh, her, what she was, she was interviewed and she said, yeah, we're, we're going to try and go full streaming in 10 years, you know, and, and also that's basically what the BBC has also said, you know, in England that they, they have that goal because I, frankly, in 10 years, Will there even be conventional broadcasting? You know, so it's not really that crazy a thing to say. However, CBC for many Canadians outside of the GTA and the major cities and anywhere within a hundred miles of the U.S. border, that's in some cases the only channel. You know, if you're up in Yellowknife or well, actually that's not true. I've been to Yellowknife. They have all <laughs> kinds of channels, but there are some some remote regions where it's vital to have that connection. So. They really are mandated under the Broadcast Act right now to continue to be a broadcaster uh, because some people need to see something in terms of television news. Well, because the economic reality here is uh, if, if you don't have a tower, you're not watching streaming. I mean, that's that's really what it comes down to. And we don't as, as the UK is a great example of that. I mean, you, you, you know, you bump into towers every three blocks there. It's a small country, a right. small island. But we've got a lot of catching up to do about about processing that and and getting enough towers up. We're better than we were 10 years ago, but we're nowhere near we need to be, I guess, uh, to, to be able to simply say, OK, we're going to drop traditional TV. And I, I think Miss Tate probably understands that. Yeah. And, you know, it's also the law, you know, so uh, she has to understand it. It's very strange, though, Bill. You know, I think we've talked about this. My family has had a cottage on Lake Huron for many, many years. And uh, I have a a crazy little dish I bought on Amazon that's pointed across the lake at Michigan. And on certain days, uh, 300 miles away, with the signal bouncing off the lake, I can pick up four different PBS stations on this wow. antenna that looks like a hairdryer, frankly. You know, so it, it, there are still ways to harness uh, digital signals off of simple antennas. Quick question, though. Just I, I know we're kind of going off the beaten path here, but if that is the future, and I don't think there's much dis- discussion or debate ab- about that now, I think it, we know which way we're going, and we seem to be going at warp speed. Uh, what would be the motivation be for the 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 tech giants, the cable giants, uh, to invest into infrastructure and things like that. If they know that inevitably it's 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 you know going to go the way of the dodo bird and the and you know the the Studebaker. Yeah, this is a great question. You know, it's very expensive, 
and Bell and Rogers and, you know, others have erected these towers all over. Um, you know, they're still very necessary and profitable for their uh, cellular phone business. So yeah. that's not going away. But, yeah, in terms of signals uh, for, for television, you wonder where the incentives are. Yeah, it's true. But, Bill, there's another issue here that's just really interesting. I don't know if you watched Saturday Night Live, but they did a sure, sketch sure. on last Saturday, and it was a quiz show, and the and the, one of the contestants were asked to name the, the most popular show on Netflix, and nobody could. And the show is called Ginny and Georgia. For the last five weeks, I think it's been their yeah. most streamed show. But it, what's fascinating to me is, and what the point they were making is, as much as we have all this content in the peak TV era, it doesn't really last or register. It doesn't have the impact. And the other thing they did on that sketch is they asked another contestant to name five um, TV shows from the 90s. And they were as familiar as your your brothers and sisters' names. You know, like things just seem to linger or stick better. And in this era where we can see everything, it's all very disposable. It, well, that's yeah. To my point, that just seems to come and go, and you know, the like, like the tide goes in and the tide goes out, and, and there, were, as as you've talked about in the past, there are enough hours in the day to watch the sorts of stuff you want to watch. Uh, uh, as you say, first of all, you have to find it, uh, but you know, when it was the traditional TV with just the well, I wasn't going to say the three networks because there's dozens of them even in those days, uh, but you yeah. knew where to go, and and you know, and before you started streaming. Uh, you knew that, okay, if you wanted to watch Cheers or you wanted to watch Night Court or whatever, you know what day it was on and what time it was on, uh, and you either recorded it or watched it then. Uh, now, like you say, with streaming, you can do whatever you want whenever you want. And and I think it kind of takes the, the the focus away to, to that point where where we're just kind of figuring we'll do what you know, there and, and you're gone and gone because there's so much else. It's like, it's like, you know, running around in a Baskin Robbins store, trying all the flavors, you know, you forget the chocolate. Cause that was the first <laughs> one. And that was five, five, five cream cones ago. And, and I think it's the same sort of thing. Now, I don't know that we're dulled to it, but there's just so much to choose from now. Well, and I think part of the challenge for CBC is they've decided that their uh, ice cream flavors are going to be specific to certain uh, groups or individuals. So they make shows that are very niche now. And, you know, um, that that gives more opportunities for uh, First Nations uh, people to see themselves on television and to make those shows. Uh, other groups, um, trans and LGBTQ, and, you know, the, the, their programming is very much aimed at specific groups and, you know, no one else is doing it, so hats off to them. But when you look at the ratings, and we can't even see the ratings anymore, but um, they, they are kind of low. You know, like the, the, the ratings aren't really there. Those shows really aren't aimed at or watched by a broad general broadcaster audience anymore. And so I think that's part of their nervousness, say, at CBC, is they're looking at what they're drawing on broadcast and it's very low. And so maybe they got to go digital just to justify going niche. 
Well, that's it. As, as you say, everybody's doing it. Uh, you know, what, what are the top 10 shows? I, I, I check that list on Netflix every week, by the way, too, just to, you know, to get some ideas as to, as to where I might want to start binging or watching some stuff. So that's it's helpful to me. Uh, but gone are the days when you want to say, okay, I got 3 million viewers or 10 million viewers or whatever the case might be. Uh, it's all niche programming right now. and uh, But I, it still costs money, doesn't it? You, some way, shape, or form, uh, you've got to at least cover your costs. And that, that's going to be the challenge, I think, for them going forward. Yeah, I mean, it costs a lot of money. And, uh, you know, television's been struggling with this for years. And for a while there, it seemed if you had a big show, you better have three countries involved in making it. You know, like Game of Thrones was shot in the UK. And, and you know, that seemed to be the only way to raise the budget. But now there's just so much TV. Um, and you're right on that Netflix list. There's a show at number nine that just started this week called Kunk on Earth which is uh, originated in, in the UK, and it's sort of a mockumentary like this is Spinal Tap. And it's very funny. But, um, you know, I'm sure as I speak, maybe a dozen listeners uh, have seen it because it's just so fragmented now. It's, it's hard to see everything. Exactly. And, and frankly, if you're a subscriber, uh, you're not invested in it. I mean, if you watch five minutes of it and say, this is this, shut, turn off. You know, it's right. not like, oh, I paid for the ticket. No, okay, I'll find something else. It's, yes. it's just, you know, this is this is a consumer's delight here that, you know, we've got so much on the smorgasbord here uh, when it comes to TV watching, uh, which is why I, I can see these guys moving into that. But it's going to be a little more challenging for CBC, I would think, uh, just because, as you say, because of the nature of their content. And, uh, well, we're, as you mentioned, some time away from this. But uh, I, I'm always intrigued by what's going to be coming up next in the product and, and the, the caliber of, of the shows that, uh, that we can see now too on on all of these streaming services you know the superstars i mean you know who who figured i i still remember a conversation you and i had built years ago and it was at might have been the emmys might have been one of the foreign things anyways kevin spacey uh was addressing the crowd and the guy who's kind of fallen out of disrepute but i mean you know at, at this time it was house of cards and it was the show and he yeah. told those executives he says this is where you need to be streaming and they just yeah right sure kevin you know uh, have another glass of wine, but you know, I'm not <laughs> suggesting he, he nailed it and everybody didn't, uh, but that's where we're going and that's where we are right now. And it's, it's amazing how we've moved in this direction at warp speed. Yeah. Like uh, we were saying, you know, you got Sylvester Stallone and Harrison Ford and Helen Mirren and all these people moving into, uh, to making, uh, these big, uh, expensive streaming shows on several different platforms. And then, you know, you've got on CBC, a show like son of a Critch, which, uh, Mark Critch's, uh, story based on his, is growing up in St. John's, uh, the episode last night kind of goofed on, um, uh, mentalists, you know, and, and, um, mm -hmm. it had a guest star was Mark McKinney, pretty good episode. So, you know, there's, that's sort of hopeful because there's a little show does not have a huge budget, but it's centered in something real and it's based in a region, but it's still, uh, is, uh, identifiable. If you grew up in Etobicoke, like it doesn't matter in, in many exactly. ways, it's, it's universal. So, uh, that's, I think where CBC and other Canadians, have to uh, aim is to tell those stories, uh, you know, have some great actors on it, but uh, try to do it on a, on a Canadian budget. Exactly. Brio TV is where you want to go to find out who's doing what. And uh, of course, the blog uh, with Bill Brio as well. Some great stuff there. Bill, as always, thanks for the time today. Really appreciate the conversation. My pleasure, Bill. Anytime. Take care. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.
The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.